So, first of all, I'm happy to be here at Ohio State. And congratulations to this great university. First time I've been here. Um, I know it's a great football school. I come from another great football school, West Point. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. Um, and I'm the only person from out of state in Ohio that's not running for president. So, um, look, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Want to do a couple things uh, very quickly. One is talk to you about the Middle East, what, what I have experienced in the region, give you my ideas. Uh, some of you may agree with them, some of you may not agree with them. I understand that. But I'm not going to speak to you as a Democrat or a Republican. I'll speak to you as a soldier that's had to deal with these areas for a long time. And I have views. Like I say, you know, you, you'll agree with some, some you won't. Uh, but I think it's important to take the dialogue about what's happening in the Middle East beyond whether we stay there or reinforce there. It, it's a much deeper problem than that, as you might imagine. And I'm looking forward to having uh, an opportunity not only to talk to you, but also to have you talk to me about what's on your mind, etc. It's a uh, great part of the world. It's filled with a uh, very, very dynamic bunch of people, and it's in huge turmoil, as you well know from looking at the news every day. But before I get started, I want to see, are there any Army ROTC cadets here? Raise your hands, there are Army guys. Why are you sitting so far back? What's Okay, Army ROTC guys, thank you for your service. I'm glad you're willing to serve your nation eventually. Navy ROTC cadets? Don't read anything into the Navy beating Army five years in a row. Thanks, Navy guys. Thank you guys for doing that. Air Force ROTC cadets. Very good. Thank you, Air Force. Marines. Wow. A lot of Marines. It, hey, don't do that. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, and are there any folks in here that are former State Department people? Really? One back there? Any Coast Guardsmen? Former Coast Guardsmen? Other veterans in the audience? Raise your hands. Veterans? Any? Gosh, this is a good crowd for me. <laughs> At Stanford, I don't see this, very, this, this kind of uh, group of ROTC cadets, veterans, etc. Uh, any CIA guys in the audience? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, it, it, it's good to see you all, and those of you that are intending to serve your country or have already served your country, thank you. And I understand it's not only military service that allows you to serve the nation. It's also service in places like uh, uh, the State Department, the Central Intelligence Agency, USAID, uh, numerous other places that you can serve, and then there's good ways to serve your community as well. I think one of the things we all have to get used to in the 21st century is there's going to be enough challenges to last us a lifetime. And if you can serve, please serve, uh, because the country needs you and the world needs you in order to make it a, a better place. Okay, now, first of all, you probably need to understand what is it that a central commander commands and what, what, what does this all mean in, in broad terms? 27 different countries were in my area of operations that were assigned to me 
by the Secretary of Defense. Didn't mean that we were able to operate in every one of them, but this was the area that any military person that was operating in had to, I uh, had to deal with. Uh, it included the Seychelles down here, which is a very nice place. And it includes Kazakhstan, made famous by Borat. I know you, you're all familiar with that. Uh, the Central Asian Republics, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, the middle of the Middle East, Egypt, down through the Horn of Africa. It includes some of the richest nations on earth, right here in the Persian Gulf, if you didn't see it today. Oil went over $100 a barrel, and that money, your capital, is enriching these countries to a very, very great degree. Um, they reinvest, of course, in the United States as well. But the amount of capital that's transferring to this part of the world, the oil-producing world, is absolutely astounding. And it drives what's happening out here, and, and uh, we need to pay attention to it. And, and so while you have some of the richest nations on Earth right in this area, you have the poorest nations on Earth right in this area. Ethiopia, Djibouti, Eritrea, uh, Somalia, very, very difficult. And of course, a lot of you know uh, what's going on in, in Kenya, a lot of ethnic violence going on over the past several weeks. It, it's, a, it's a region, primarily Muslim, but also Christian states, a uh, large number of Christians in Kenya, it's a majority uh, religion. Ethiopia, a large number of Christians, but most of the rest of the states are uh, generally Muslim. Israel was not included in my area of operations, interestingly enough. It was decided for political military reasons that Israel would be in the, the uh, European command area. So in this area we had 250,000 Americans or so at most of the time. Uh, at the height of our involvement in Iraq, there were total in the region of uh, nearly half a million Americans. And when you think of how many American troops have been back there for the third time, the fourth time, uh, the fifth time, etc., cetera, uh, there's been well over two million Americans in uniform that have served in, in this part of the world. And it, it is an area of vital concern to the United States. Now, when, when I originally took command, Lebanon and Syria right here were not part of the command. And Secretary Rumsfeld, who was my boss, my chain of command was Secretary Rumsfeld and then the President. So it was a short chain of command to talk to folks up at the top. Secretary Rumsfeld called me and said, I noticed that Lebanon and Syria are not in your area of operations. And I'm thinking about assigning them to your area. What do you think? So for those of you who have read that he didn't talk to us, you're already wrong. Okay, and I said, well, Mr. Secretary, um, Afghanistan war, Iraq war, terrorism throughout the region, uh, an awful lot of difficulties going on, piracy off the coast of Somalia, have to guide, guard the oil pipelines and the, the oil flows of the tankers, etc. I said, with everything going on in the region, I'm, I, I really can't take on two more countries that would be difficult to deal with. And he said, thank you very much, you got him. <laughs> and so I said, well, while you're at it, could you give me North Korea and Haiti? <laughs> yeah. But he didn't. 
And, and of course, it was the right thing to do. I mean, those two countries properly belong in this area. But, but this region, in, in many respects, I, I came to look at this region as maybe the first, it's a region undergoing great change within the religion of Islam in particular. Uh, struggles with extremism versus moderation. Uh, struggles Sunni, Shia, uh, all sorts of uh, difficulties going on out here that, that uh, cause violence to rise to the surface much more often than we would like. But I, in many ways I came to see what was going on throughout this whole region as really one of the first battles of globalization where people who are trying to enter into the globalizing planet and be part of the future of the planet, to enter into the information systems, enter into the trading systems, the economic systems, are struggling mightily uh, to be part of that, while forces of reaction are struggling mightily not to allow that to happen. And it, it's too, too simple to say, it's all about Iraq or it's all about Afghanistan. It's really about a region in turmoil that's struggling with the 21st century, that's trying to figure itself out and try to figure its identity and its place in this globalizing planet. And I think one of the most important things we have to do is number one, recognize that, and number two, uh, do our best to shape it in a way that's good for the good people in the region, which are the vast majority of them, and good for our interests as well. So, uh, fascinating part of the world. And I'd say, I used to, back in the days when I was a general, not retired, I used to have 20 people that would do the slides for me. Now I have to do it. Thank God I've learned. You know, my, and of course you have all these guys that are around you when you're a general officer. You have your own plane, your own cars, you know, the bunch of bodyguards, etc. And the staff will always say to you, you get through with a presentation like this and you say to these young military guys, you say, well, how was it? Great, sir. It was wonderful. It was perfect, you know. And now it's just me and my wife and she says, why did you say that? You know, why did you do that? But, you know, the truth of the matter is, um, this part of the world, again, has a lot more going on than Iraq and Afghanistan. And you just need to look at the map and, and kind of go through various areas. You know, the King of Jordan talks about a Shia crescent that's, that's uh, threatening the, uh, the Sunni world. That, that's probably uh, not what a lot of people would like to hear, but he said it at one point. Uh, you have over in here uh, an area on the Afghan-Pakistan border area where Al-Qaeda senior leaders operate, where an awful lot of uh, difficult activity with Al-Qaeda takes place. Of course, you're aware of the Pakistani elections that took place yesterday without too much violence. Um, very interesting where Pakistan may be heading. Uh, you, you see all sorts of development in the Central Asian republics. Iran continues to try to develop a nuclear weapon, although it's disputed by the National Intelligence Estimate that the truth of the matter is they do have the capacity to move forward in that regard. Uh, Counterinsurgency operations with U.S. forces in Iraq and in Afghanistan, drugs endemic throughout the area and moving back and forth, ungoverned spaces down here in the Horn of Africa, 
uh, genocide in Darfur. I mean, you just look at the region and, and you, you say it would be easier just to leave it alone, but not in today's world, not in my opinion. In, in, in today's world, you have to engage. You shouldn't try to control it. The Romans couldn't control it. The British couldn't control it. We can't control it. But we can pe help people in the region help themselves against these terrific problems that, uh, uh, that are evident out there. And, and I, I want to tell you about, before we talk about Iraq and Afghanistan, which we will during the question and answer period, I, I want to tell you about what I think the four major geostrategic issues are that uh, whoever gets elected in November and then gets sworn into office in January are going to have to deal with. No matter what. I mean, it, again, it's not stay in Iraq or leave Iraq, stay in Afghanistan, leave Afghanistan. It's how do we deal with these very, very difficult issues that have arisen in this part of the world that we're going to have to deal with and that our young people are uh, going to have to deal with not only militarily but also with other elements of national power. The first movement in the region that we really need to understand and think about is the rise of Sunni Islamic extremism as exemplified by groups such as Osama bin Laden led Al-Qaeda. Now I understand a lot of my Muslim friends, and I have many, don't like it when I even use the word extremism and Islamic in the same word. Uh, and look, I'm not saying that bin Laden is on the right side of Islam. He's not. He's taken the religion and he's perverted it. Yet there are people that follow him for religious reasons. His movement is Sunni, it's religious, it's extreme, it's dangerous, and it's operating in a very, very interesting way, not only throughout this region. In every one of these countries, there are cells of some sort that operate either openly or underground. But not only do they operate openly or underground in this region, they also operate in, in Europe and Africa, uh, down in places such as Indonesia and Southeast Asia, uh, in South America, North America. They are a stateless group of people that somehow or other managed to put military power together that has allowed them to attack Washington, New York, London, nearly every one of these countries on the map here in one way or another, uh, Indonesia, Morocco, you just go on and on. It, it's a very, very interesting organization uh, that is not 10 feet tall, but it is dangerous. It's figured out how to use military might abroad in a very, very interesting way. And it has figured out how to organize itself in particular in the virtual and the cyberspace where they recruit, train, um, proselytize, organize, plan, fundraise, in a way that's uh, quite interesting. If, if you ever want to know what Al-Qaeda stands for, and I'm not going to give you a lecture about that today, get on their website and read what they say. Just like back in the 1920s, if you had got a book called Mein Kampf, you, you would have had a pretty good idea about what Hitler intended to do. These guys have written out very, very clearly what they intend to do. And what they intend to do is 
eventually drive us from the region uh, so that they can gain ascendancy in the region. And when they gain ascendancy in the region, they believe in their ideology uh, that they'll be able to eventually dominate the globe. Now, a lot of people think that that's fantastic. That's their words, not my words. Uh, do they have that capacity today? No. Could they tomorrow? Maybe. Um, but it's a group of people uh, that are serious, they have a plan, they're well organized, they're well financed, and they operate in places like Western Iraq to a certain extent, Pakistan, Afghanistan, border area, down here in Somalia in the Horn of Africa. Uh, they operate in Saudi Arabia. Um, they, they operate in a way sometimes very effectively and sometimes they're the gang that can't shoot straight. But they need to be paid attention to uh, not because they're terrorists, Terrorist is their, terrorism is their tool, but because they represent a movement and a desire to ideologically dominate the region. And they're at the beginning, I, I would say, of, of this curve that could go upward uh, where people might be attracted to their cause for a lot of different reasons. So Sunni religious extremism in the region is a geostrategic problem for the United States and for almost every one of these countries here. It's also a problem for our European friends and allies where Al-Qaeda has what I would call an intellectual safe haven uh, where the countries in that region don't really contest their presence. The second big geostrategic issue as far as I'm concerned is what I would call another ideological threat and this is from Shia theocratic uh, religious extremism as exemplified by the nation state of Iran. So on the one hand you have the Sunnis in Al-Qaeda, non-nation state based. On the other hand, the Iranian Shia theocracy as represented by the president uh, Ahmadinejad and as shown uh, to be aggressive by their actions in southern Iraq, eastern Saudi Arabia, southern Lebanon, uh, eastern part of Afghanistan. And, you know, it, it's, it's a very, very interesting um, problem that we see in the region because Sunni extremism and Shia extremism are not compatible. As a matter of fact, they frequently come into conflict and it is very often seen, especially here in Iraq, where uh, Sunni and Shia interests get into conflict and create uh, very difficult and violent circumstances. Now, the Shia extremist activity that you see sponsored by the Iranians comes in a lot of different forms. Uh, part of it is using their intelligence services to operate in these places where we are to contest our presence. Uh, some of it is to operate by sending an awful lot of equipment to Hezbollah in southern Lebanon so it can be used against our uh, friends in the region, the Israelis. Uh, a lot of it has to do with Iranian muscle flexing and, and uh, working on a nuclear program that could be expanded to build a, a weapon at some point. And, and of course, ultimately, uh, the Iranians' desire for domination of these small but rich Gulf states is one that keeps the small but rich Gulf states very close to the United States 
for reasons that you can well imagine. So two big ideological movements, Sunni extremism, Shia extremism, both implacably against American activity and American presence in the region, uh, create a, a dynamic for us uh, that's very, very interesting. And, and what you have to understand is that neither of these two movements are what I would call mainstream. In Iran, Shia extremism, I believe, will eventually go the way of any other of these types of movements. The good people of Iran will decide that it's time for a change of government. I don't know when it's going to be, five years, 10 years, 15 years from now. But ultimately, it will happen, and Iran, Iran will join uh, the, the group of nations that are responsible in the region. The other movement, Sunni extremism, the vast majority of people in the region don't want it to be successful. You see in El Ambar province, when they saw Al-Qaeda operate up close, that people turned away from it. They turned away from uh, Sunni extremism as led by bin Laden and the Taliban in Afghanistan. It's not an attractive philosophy. If you want to know how it works, just think of how things were under the Taliban in Afghanistan where people went to um, soccer stadiums to see people executed, where women had no opportunity to participate in any functions whatsoever in the role of civil society, where monuments were destroyed, music banned, etc., etc. It's not a popular sort of ideology, but it is one that we should do everything we can to help people in the region resist. Uh, because if it ever goes mainstream, then I believe the situation becomes much more difficult for everybody. The third big geostrategic reality that everybody's going to have to deal with has to do with the Arab-Israeli conflict. The Arab-Israeli conflict is corrosive. It creates a sense of hopelessness. It drives people to the extremes. We have to figure out how to move the peace process forward in a way that protects Israel and gives some sort of legitimate aspirations to the Palestinian people. If it was easy, we would have accomplished it by now, but it can't be done without some form of American leadership and dealing with the Arab-Israeli problem in conjunction with everything else here uh, is vitally important. The fourth geostrategic reality in the region is sure one that I'm certain everybody here understands, and it has to do with the price of oil at $100 a barrel. It's the fact that the world's economy depends upon the flow of oil from these countries here primarily, through the Straits of Hormuz, around through the Bab el-Mandeb, through the Suez Canal, through various oil routes that move here and there and elsewhere. Uh, but the global economy, whether we like it or not, is dependent upon the continued flow of that oil. Al-Qaeda has attempted to stop that on numerous different occasions by attacking facilities in Saudi Arabia, trying to attack facilities in Qatar and the UAE, attacking a tanker off the coast here of Yemen. Uh, they haven't been successful, but the fact that they're trying to disrupt that flow shows how important they regard it. And really, it, it's the power and might of the United States Navy and Air Force that keeps that oil flowing. And it suggests to me these four problems that there's four things that, that we're going to have to deal with. 
And these four problems, by the way, aren't going to go away anytime soon, nor have they been away from us for long. It's, it's a problem that we faced for many years in the Middle East. But Sunni extremism, as exemplified by bin Laden, needs to be confronted with a combination of military power and soft power, international help, and the help of good people in the region. Iran, in my mind, needs to be contained. Iranian, notice I didn't say attacked. Iranian power needs to be contained. It needs to be dealt with in a mature fashion. And there needs to be very, very specific understandings that exist between us and them about what is acceptable and unacceptable in getting through day-to-day um, -day operations and events to try to make the Middle East a uh, better place for the people that live out there. The Arab-Israeli process need to push it forward as hard as we can. I don't think that this current administration will actually have time to, to seal a peace deal. We can always hope that it's such, uh, but what I would rather hope is that this administration's current deal can be passed through to the new president and continued work on it uh, go on to lessen the tensions there. And then finally, something we probably should have done 50 years ago, we've got to figure out what are we going to do about oil? How are we going to reduce our dependence on oil? How are we going to reduce our dependence on what constantly brings us back here? And I think how many times I fought out here in my career. I mean, I fought out here in one way or another 12 years of my life. And, and you know, we think of ourselves as a Eurocentric country, but really the Middle East has made us a Middle Eastern-centric country as far as our military power is concerned. We're very heavily engaged out here, and it's not to say it's because of the oil companies. It's just to say that the global economy depends upon the protection of the oil routes, and we need to do whatever we can uh, to start limiting the influence that uh, uh, our continued reliance on Middle Eastern oil has on us by developing areas of conservation, new technologies, and uh, different ways of approaching the energy situation as we go into the 21st century. These four problems, the Arab-Israeli conflict, reliance on oil, Arab uh, Sunni uh, Islamic extremism as exemplified by bin Laden and uh, uh, Shia extremism as exemplified by Iran are going to be with us for a while. But I believe that with the smart application of our national power, uh, we can deal with it in a coherent way. Now, I didn't mean to give you a battle map, but in a way it's good for people to try to understand what military commanders say to our leaders about what we think needs to be done militarily. Now first I want you to understand there are about 250,000 Americans out in this region and we're doing an awful lot of fighting and there's an awful lot of difficult things happening especially in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Uh, but el also elsewhere we have a small base down here in Djibouti where we uh, operate with military forces. We help the Pakistanis, we help the Saudis and our Gulf neighbors here, the Jordanians, Egyptians, etc. But ultimately over time, you have to reduce your military activities in the region and increase 
the activities of the State Department, of USAID, of economic activity. You, you have to come up with a holistic plan of helping the good people in the region help themselves so they can resist the spread of extremism because ultimately they're the ones that will win. Now this map represents something that, that I might tell my boss if, if uh, he asked a couple of years ago uh, about what our priorities ought to be. And I said, look, first and foremost, we have to stabilize Iraq. You got to stabilize Iraq because all these four problems come together in some way in Iraq. Uh, but you need to stabilize it because just look at where it is. And, and it, it doesn't mean necessarily that you need to keep 150,000 troops there forever. Uh, but it does mean that you've got to continue to move forward step by step to stabilize it, turn over more and more over time to the Iraqis, and uh, gradually over time diminish your direct military confrontation in the area. The number two priority that you see up here is interestingly enough not Afghanistan, it's the Pakistan border area. And it's because on the Pakistan border area, it's one of the few areas in this region where Islamic, Sunni extremism and bin Laden have gained a stronger foothold in the past year uh, than anywhere else. And, and, and it's absolutely essential that especially with the new Pakistani government coming forward uh, with the new prime minister, etc., that we work with them to try to help them help themselves against this very, very bad extremist problem that's developed in the border area. It's a hard thing to do. Uh, we don't have freedom of action there completely, uh, but it's really the number two problem in the region that's got to be dealt with. One of the reasons it's got to be dealt with is that Pakistan's a nuclear-armed country. And in the event of a security meltdown in Pakistan, we, you have to always worry about the possibility of a nuclear weapon being transferred to the hands of the extremists. And if you know, like I do, who the extremists are, what they believe, what they think, it is their intention to try to figure out how to get a, a weapon of mass destruction to use against us uh, in the region. Number three, you have, to, you have to stabilize Afghanistan. Number four, move the Arab-Israeli peace process forward. Number five, prevent the flow of Al-Qaeda down into the Horn of Africa. We have to a certain extent, but not enough. Um, and then you see these other two things on the map here, A and B. A is contain Iran and B is contain Syria. And, you know, simply as a theater commander, this is the way that we looked at it and we tried to allocate our resources to deal with it. And you have to understand it's just not us fighting out there. It's not us versus them. It's us plus them plus our European allies uh, fighting in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. And it's very interesting, 70,000 Afghan soldiers are fighting with the coalition here. Nearly 300,000 Iraqis fighting with the coalition here. Pakistanis have 70,000 troops fighting here against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, you know, various degrees of success. The Saudis have 
20 or 30,000 interior ministry forces fighting Al-Qaeda there. So it, it's a very, very big international effort that's going on out there. But it's not one that can be successful without the leadership of the United States of, of America. And, and I think it's important for us to kind of understand that. Now I want to take a minute or two and show you um, one of the reasons that I think we need to pay attention to Al-Qaeda. This is a geographic description of how Al-Qaeda might look. A lot of different groups connected by leadership nodes, operational cells. Uh, all of this looks like you know, there's a simple military solution to it. All we have to do is go to those nodes, go find them, go kill them. But, you know, it's not that simple as you can all well imagine. These are terrorist groups that are operating beneath the radar screen. Some places they operate openly, like in Waziristan, but in most of them they're underground and they operate in a way that gives them great strength and they connect uh, virtually in a way that's that's very important. Now, sometimes we want to talk about this particular problem like World War II. All we have to do is put our troops in, march on the capital, destroy their armies, etc., etc., and we'll win. But it's not that simple. It's not the type of war that we're fighting there. Part of it requires military force. But when you really look at this organization, Instead of thinking of it geographically, I, I think it's better to think of it as a networked organization where its ideology plays the cohesive role in the middle and where all these sorts of things happen all around it. Um, these areas down here, terrorist camps, uh, leaders and fighters, uh, weapons, these are things that military forces can get at. But over here, sympathetic members of legitimate governments, front companies, safe havens, uh, over here smugglers, non-governmental organizations that are sympathetic, uh, financial moves that, that uh, fund this network, and then up in here all the things that go on in the internet, recruitment and education, uh, internet proselytizing, organizing for uh, the future, etc. This makes this a very, very different and unusual organization to deal with. It's an organization that is 21st century centric and is very dangerous and is very capable and it requires not just the application of military force to deal with it but really a network of national and international forces to squeeze on this thing over time. And unfortunately, it'll take a long time to do the squeezing. Now, in closing, I would say there's a couple key things that, that we need to understand I, in, my, in my mind. Um, first of all, do I think Iraq can be stabilized? I, I think it can. Is it a certain thing? Uh, no, it certainly isn't a certain thing. We, we always go into some place and we want it to be over with quickly, but when you're working with a nation, when you're trying to build institutions, when you're trying to build an army, when you're dealing with insurgency problems, it's a long-term effort. It's a long-term effort, by the way, 
and we have used our armed forces so heavily in dealing with it that they are stretched, they're strained, and we need to pay attention to what's going on in particular with the Army and the Marine Corps. I, I use my own son-in-law as an example. He, he's an infantry officer. He served in Afghanistan for a year. He's had three tours of duty in Iraq, and he was wounded once in Iraq. That's an awful lot for a guy that graduated from West Point in 1999. And, uh, you know, he's fine with doing it. He's a soldier. That's his duty. And he's proud to do it. But my daughter, the soldier's daughter, she's saying, well, it's getting pretty hard. And, and so, you know, one of the things that we as citizens have got to come to grips with, what are we going to do to help the Army? Are we going to make it bigger? Or are we going to draw it down in the region so that it can rest? Because if it is too strained and something else happens somewhere else, like in Iran or North Korea, uh, we'll find ourselves in a perilous strategic position and we don't want to put ourselves in that particular place. Finally, I'd say to you is have faith of the good people in the region. They don't want the extremists to win. We're actually at a good point in this campaign if we can just see our way through to figure out how to use our resources wisely over time to confront the extremists. We've got to get more State Department people to the field. We've got to get them to the right place in the field. We've got to get more people from the USAID. We have to get more investment going on out here. We have to go from an 80% military campaign with 20% of our rest of our power adding to the effort to eventually go like this. And we ought to be able to do that in a smart way that coordinates and synchronizes and allows us to move forward successfully. Now, a good friend of mine who was the commander of our troops in Afghanistan and I were out in the battlefield area somewhere right around in here um, looking at a big road project that we had on. And, and the, the road project was very interesting. You know, we, we'd try to get the engineers up there and, and dig this uh, uh, trail to a small village and it was just very, very heavily contested by the Taliban and by Al-Qaeda every, every step of the way. And I said, well, why are they fighting so hard over this? It just, it's really not that important. He says, well, it is important because where the road ends is where the Taliban begins. And, and that's really a metaphor for what's going on out here. And while everybody says, let's don't do nation building, to ignore these nations out there, to ignore their needs, to ignore what they have to do to resist extremism, is only to put ourselves and our friends in danger. So do I think things can come out well in the Middle East for the United States of America? My answer is yes, I do. But not without an awful lot of all of us talking to our political leadership about how we do it right. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. We now have plenty of time for questions. Yes, sir. Can you hear in the back? 
he, he, the question was, will Army play for the national championship next year? Uh, the, Europe, the, the question was, are, are we getting enough help from our European friends, essentially? And the, the answer is yes and no. Um, our Eastern European friends have uh, put a lot of effort into some activity in, in Iraq with regards to troops, although Iraq, as you know, is, is not one of these operations where a lot of people have wanted to put much effort, time, and uh, strain in to help the United States. So this is primarily Americans and Iraqis operating together up in here. But in Afghanistan, you have a NATO mission, and the NATO mission is very robust. There's an awful lot of European troops there. The problem is whether or not all of the European NATO countries have the same rules of engagement to deal with the problems that are on the battlefield, and the truth of the matter is they do not. Some countries, such as the British and the Canadians, are fighting very hard, and they're losing a lot of troops, and they're doing a great job. Other countries that I won't name uh, are, are not allowing their troops to go outside of secure containment areas. And, and ultimately, the alliance has got to determine whether it's going to fight or not. And, and if we're going to fight to stabilize Afghanistan, that's precisely what we've got to do. Uh, but we can't just rely on American military power, British and Canadian military power, of course, other countries have uh, participated in a good way. Or we've got to come to some sort of an accommodation about who participates where. In other words, you want to bring in field hospitals, that's what your niche is going to be, um, then let's do that. But I, uh, it's very, very clear that you, you shouldn't come just to be there just to show the flag. You need to come if you're going to help. If you're not going to help, please don't come. And I think it's a hard conversation that I see Secretary Gates having with our allies uh, that has made him somewhat unpopular in some places, but it's the kind of conversation we have to have. There's too much work to be done out here in Africa, in Asia, around the world as we globalize and move towards a better outcome in the 21st century. Too much work to be done to have it all done by the U.S. U.S. Leadership is essential, but it can't be done by us alone. And so I think uh, we need to expect more from our European friends. And uh, I believe probably with the new leadership that comes in Washington, that there may be some additional willingness to participate. Thanks. Yes. Great question. The question was, can I comment on what China and Russia are doing? And whether or not they're helping or hindering? Or whether, you know, are they doing good or doing bad? Um, of course, you, you know, what makes this, in, this area so interesting, here's Afghanistan, uh, but, you know, here are the, the, these three gross weight tonnage countries that have so much capability, India, China, Russia. And then there's Middle East over here. And, and you look at, at where they're positioned on the Eurasian landmass, and you understand why this area is so important 
to move forward in a, in a positive way. Um, when we first went into Afghanistan, it's fair to say we moved in with Russian cooperation. And, and I would say it was active cooperation. We, we built some uh, transit bases up in this area. Uh, we overflew the Central Asian Republics and we did some supplying from the north and through Pakistan and so we could do the operations in Afghanistan. And they, they operate to a certain extent, but over time the Russians have become um, very jealous of American presence in Central Asia and I say we've gone from cooperation to contesting. I, I don't think it's healthy, I don't think it's in Russia's interest to do that. They need to understand that that we're here to stabilize Afghanistan, which would be good for them if we could do it, uh, and not to take potential clients away from Russia. And of course this part of the region is made even more difficult because while most of the oil flows through here, uh, there's a tremendous amount of gas and oil that's starting to flow through here, and there's an awful lot of pipelines that are being through there, being built through there, and uh, Russian interests are pretty high. So, you know, I, clearly the Russians have problems all along their southern border with Islamic extremism. They've been fighting it for a long time. And there are common reasons to have common ground against this, this enemy, but uh, uh, it's very, very difficult to work with the Russians in, in, in this particular area. Although, um, I, you know, you have the Russians helping the Iranians a lot more than we might like as well. Now, that's the case with Russia. China, much less apparent in the region with the exception of making an awful lot of deals with an awful lot of countries to protect the flow of oil that is becoming more and more important to their developing future. And, and what drives the, the, the price of oil up so much has an awful lot to do with uh, Indian and Chinese um, consumption and the lack of supply available worldwide. Chinese are not aggressive in the terms of a great power, uh, but the Chinese here in this area where they have their own Muslim populations are worried about the infiltration of uh, extremists. And again, it's a complicated situation. I, I think that in the distant future there might be some sort of of uh, security concerns between the United States, China, and Russia, but I think those, those concerns are far off. The immediate concerns of dealing with all of these uh, security points that I brought up are with us here and now, and the more cooperatively they can be dealt with, the more chance for success we'll have. Yes, sir. Yeah, the, the question is how much of the, the third geopolitical issue is Arab-Israeli and how much of it is Israeli-Palestinian? Um, well, it's much less Arab-Israeli uh, specific than it used to be. In other words, you go to, to Jordan and you go to Egypt uh, and, and you talk to folks in the UAE and Qatar, etc. And, and the animosity against Israel, while it still exists, 
that there's growing understanding that Israel has a right to exist. When I was a young officer growing up in this part of the world, uh, as a young U.S. military officer, there, you know, back in the 70s, there, there was absolutely no chance that anybody would compromise with the Israelis for anything. Uh, today, you see that much more uh, active. But it's, it's interesting to me how often the problem of Arab-Israeli peace and Palestinian-Israeli peace is probably better said, comes up everywhere out here and comes up throughout the Muslim world. And if it wasn't for the fact that so many respected people that I know and uh, who are my friends tell me that, that that's a key part to the puzzle, uh, if they hadn't just kept telling me that for the past 34 years of my military career, I'd, you know, I would scoff at it. But I don't scoff at it because that's the way they feel. And so much of this problem out there has to do with respect. And, you know, if people don't respect one another, it drives people to the extremes. The Israeli-Palestinian problem is, of course, made a hundred times worse by what's going on with Hamas. It's just not a problem of dealing with the PLO, the former PLO, the Fatah, in uh, the West Bank. It's now a problem of the PLO in the West Bank and uh, uh, Hamas, which is... Uh, you know, a dangerous organization down in Gaza. And, you know, we're, we need to separate the emotion of the Palestinian um, groups from the need to help the Palestinian people. And we just got to figure out how to do that. And at the same time, protect the interest of the state of Israel. Easy to say, hard to do. Let's see somebody way in the back. Yes. What about the Al-Qaeda? Did I read it? No. Did you? I did read it. Who wrote it? Yeah, and how was it? Um, how, did, did you read Lawrence Wright, Looming Tower? That's a great book to read if you want to understand the ideological connections. And I've been remiss, I've been reading too much Sports Illustrated. <laughs> but you know, I, it, it's easier to read Sports Illustrated than some of this stuff. But look, um, the other thing I'd urge, urge you to do, and, and I, I appreciate you know, where your question is going, you know, don't, don't just read books written by Americans. You know, get on Islamic websites moderate Islamic websites and extremist websites and they're all easily translatable and see what people are saying. This part of the world will, will either will, will either help the, the rest of the planet globalize in a positive way or in a negative way if it gets pushed towards extremism, if extremism ever goes mainstream out here believe me it's our worst nightmare not only for the good people in the region but for us so understanding uh, culturally what's going on out there is important. We, now, let me just say one more thing about bridging the cultural gap. I talked to some of the ROTC guys up here in the front row when I first came in and some young ladies sitting over here. 
that are learning Arabic or they want to go to Jordan or they want to go to Syria to, to learn Arabic. And are any of you in the group here doing Islamic studies? And how many of you are learning uh, languages from this part of the world? Yeah. You know, when I was a young officer, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the Middle East we were worried about. It, it, was, it, it was Russia, the Soviet Union. And you could literally find hundreds of thousands of experts, like the experts who run the Mershon Center, as a matter of fact, uh, that were Soviet Union experts of the, the greatest caliber imaginable. And there were these people uh, that knew everything about the Communist Party, Russian government or uh, Soviet government, their military, you name it, we knew it. And that's one of the reasons that over time we had the expertise that was built up within the country that allowed us to understand them and, and to be able to uh, defeat them the way that we defeated them in the Cold War. We don't have that kind of expertise with regard to this part of the world. When I called for experts, when I first took command out here, the number was in the low hundreds. And it's essential that we figure out how to get more people to understand this part of the world so that we can bridge the cultural gap so we can be successful. Yes, sir. Um, the prospects for Kurdish independence, if you ask President Barzani, are high. If you ask the Iranians, the Syrians, the Turks, the Saudis, the Syrians, you know, it's low. Especially the Turks say it's low. And when I used to talk, and I got to know the Kurds very well because I was there in 1991, had an opportunity to operate in that part of the world, get to know their leadership. And I'd always tell them, you know, autonomy is one thing, independence could be the end of any hope. So I don't think the geopolitical realities of the region would allow Kurdish independence to take place in the next 20 years. Do I think it's an aspiration that they have? Yes, uh, but don't underestimate how difficult it is. The Kurdish entity has done a wonderful job in a lot of different ways, and they're the most prosperous part of this part of the world, and they've done a great job. But I, I don't see independence happening, and if the independence agenda is pushed too far, I, I think it begins to uh, create the frictions that start to to, to move the region into a greater conflict. So, um, autonomy, I, I think, is probably more of that. Yes, sir? Uh, this is kind of a two-part question. Um, two-part question. Yes. Uh, on the issue Part of Pakistan, one. Um, is Pakistan doing what you believe they should be doing in helping us with the war on terror? Have they not been as effective as they should be? And also, Recently, uh, the CIA sent an unmanned drone across the border and reportedly killed a senior Al-Qaeda leader. If the new Pakistani administration isn't as sympathetic to the war on terror as the current one supposedly is, do you see unilateral U.S. action escalating? Um, do you hear the question in the back about Pakistan and 
you know, how, how uh, are the Pakistanis doing? And if they're, they're not doing enough, should we do more? Is how I'd summarize the question. Um, first of all, I became a, a personal friend of President Musharraf because he's a fellow general. I, I got to know him out there. He, uh, I know he's controversial politically. He's not controversial militarily. Um, he's, he, he has a great desire to free his country from the, the problems associated with extremism. And he's, he's working it very, very hard. But at the same time, he's also moved the country to crisis because he can't deal with civil society in, in a way that's, uh, that's good. He put 70,000 troops up in this region and you would have thought that that'd be enough to deal with the region. It's a very tough and difficult area. Um, very, very tough, very rugged area. And they have had some success, but not enough. Um, the, the region in the last year has become what I would call more Talibanized than at any time since I've been watching it, and it's a dangerous problem. Dangerous for Pakistan and dangerous for Afghanistan and dangerous for everybody if, God forbid, a, a, some sort of a security problem would cause a nuclear weapon to, to become loose. I don't think that's likely, but it, it could happen. Uh, the Pakistanis are intent on dealing with the problem. I don't know what the new government will do. I think they'll probably initially do less. And one of the problems that we have is that as this area has become much more Talibanized, it's really spilled over in the past eight months in eastern and uh, southern Afghanistan in a way that's bad for President Karzai's government. So um, it, it's, it's a difficult problem that requires the proper use of American intelligence and military capability. Uh, you know, my, my desire was always to help the Pakistanis and I always wanted the Pakistanis to take more military help, which meant, you know, let us put some of our troops with your troops and we can help you uh, do uh, some direct combat operations. But for political reasons, they didn't want to accept that. So how are things going to go there? I, I, think, I think they'll get worse before they get better. Uh, I think we'll continue to operate there. And when we find bin Laden and Zawahiri, we'll will kill him. Now, we haven't found bin Laden in Sawahiri. We've been at it for a long time. I know a lot of people in the audience want to know why. Well, I mean, this area from here to here, it's kind of like the Rocky Mountain area. It's, it's just like it. Uh, it's very, very rugged, very difficult. Um, and he's got a lot of sympathizers, and there's a lot of money pouring in there that help keep him safe. And while we haven't got the number one and the number two guy, don't be the number three guy. Because the number three guy usually doesn't make it through six months or so. And so, you know, we, we shouldn't feel bad about going after the terrorist nodes when we find them. Uh, but on the other hand, we, we can't operate in, in a sovereign nation's backyard and destabilize the country and make it more attractive to the extremists uh, that would that would not make much sense either. So it's a tough, tough problem, and I'm glad I don't have to deal with it anymore.
I, matter of fact, I live in the uh, uh, California-Nevada border area, which is a lot like Waziristan. Uh, and all the people in the California-Nevada border area are heavily armed. They, 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 they hate the federal government, and I'm forming a militia up there. I'm convinced we might find bin Laden up there. Okay. Um, yes, sir. And then we'll come back over here. How dangerous of a threat is Sudan becoming to Africa and the Middle East, and how does America plan to respond? The question is, how, what about Sudan? How dangerous are things in Sudan, and how extremist is Sudan, genocide in Darfur, etc., etc.? Well, I, I, I tell you, you know, there's enough problems out in this part of the world to last you a lifetime, but you can't turn your back on genocide in the 21st century. And this is part of our problem. If you're so heavily engaged here that you really have no capacity to go do anything else, then uh, you, you have to ask other people to deal with it. And that, I think the president's African trip, he is asking other people to, to help deal with it. It's, it's a tough thing. There are a lot of people in the Sudanese government that over the years have been very sympathetic to bin Laden's ideology. Do I think it's an extremist state? No. Do I think it could become an extremist state? No, but, you know, the problem with Sudan is bigger than Islamic extremism. It has to do with problems in the South, fights over oil, uh, tribal differences, uh, all sorts of different ethnic conflicts. And the, the truth of the matter is, in my mind, and I, I'm sure there's some professors in the audience here that have a better view of Africa than me, a a Africa is, is really going to be a huge security challenge for everybody, especially, especially in the center there, all the way from the Horn of Africa across Sudan, Chad, Congo, etc., all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. And we're going to have to deal with it. We've got to figure out how to help people. We've got to do our best to uh, limit the spread of extremism out there. And we, we have to invest in the future of Africa. Otherwise, the future in Africa is going to drag us down into a bad future for ourselves. Uh, over here in the blue shirt. division between the police force for 
Yeah. Are you a senator? That's, man, that's a great question. Um, look, I, I, I mean, this is part of what we're talking about here and part of what our new national leadership will have to deal with. And we ought to start by answering that question by saying, are our national security structures right for the 21st century? Do they allow us to get our military power, our economic power, diplomatic, etc., etc., educational, informational, uh, international power to bear on these difficult problems in a way that makes sense for the 21st century. Now, my view is we have to reform the system. It's not agile enough, it's not flexible enough, it's not robust enough to deal with globalizing problems of the 21st century, and we've, we've got to change. Uh, I, I think that the, in, every, in every era, there's problems associated with nation-states that are threats. What are the nation-state threats that you can immediately think of uh, that could come about relatively quickly? One of them is North Korea, the other is Iran. Uh, there are other problems with big, bigger powers that could confront us in the longer term. We just have to wait and see. But there's problems with genocide. There's problems with terrorism. And remember, you know, terrorism, terrorism isn't the problem. Terrorism is the tactic. The problem is the ideology. The question is, you know, how do we apply our resources uh, to help deal with the various ideologies? So. Uh, I, I think we have a real challenge ahead in the 21st century to give people the tools and the capabilities necessary to confront the extremist challenge in this part of the world, uh, but also to deal with the frequent other problems that are going to happen uh, that aren't just going to be terrorist-inspired sorts of problems. There'll be problems associated with global warming. And those of you that know Bangladesh over here, uh, global warming <laughs> Is, is raising havoc with that poor country and will continue to do so. There's all sorts of national, natural disasters that happen in this part of the world and it can't only be the United States that responds. I mean, we have to be able to figure out how to move efficiently and effectively in, in a way that's good for this planet. In the back, all the way in the back. I'm sorry, without it looking like a Christian? Is there a way to, to help protect the Iraqi Christians? Well, um, first of all, it, it's not a, a, an Islamic Christian war. And I think what we have to do is do everything we can to prevent that from happening. Us and our Islamic friends and uh, um, brothers and sisters in the region. It, it's very important. Are we helping the Iraqi Christians? To the extent that we can, yeah, but the Iraqi Christian community has been fleeing and it's a very difficult ethnic environment for them. They're primarily up here in the Mosul area, uh, but also other areas. Uh, but I'd say, you know, Christian communities in the Middle East 
are suffering from this problem of increased extremism from groups such as bin Laden that don't want to put up with them. We, we do need to try to help them every way that we can. It's not an easy thing. One more question? One more question? You pick, sir. Mother of all questions. Yeah. Great question. The question is, okay, give me some example about this 80 to 20%. Because if this is a war, let's just get on with it and go over there and take care of the problem with our military forces. Um, it, it, it is a war, but it's also a law enforcement problem. It's also an economic problem. It's a political and a diplomatic problem. But uh, I want you to consider a provincial reconstruction team in Afghanistan. And the idea of putting these provincial reconstruction teams together was to have all the elements of power come together at one place, a State Department officer running the team, a CIA person dealing with intelligence, a drug enforcement agency dealing with the poppy crop, a Department of Agriculture dealing with trying to help the farmers in the region, uh, military guys to provide security, uh, and and uh, USAID to get money and distribute the money for economic projects. And, and when it came together, when it comes together, that, that group of 20 or so, 20 to 40 people, uh, does more good on the ground than a brigade of infantry. And, and it's just amazing to see that. Now the problem is, I can tell you, going to a place like Jalalabad, uh, early in 2004 where I saw this whole team working. I talked to the governor and the governor, the Afghan governor, a young lady about your age, you know, yes, you know, sitting out there, that's a State Department person uh, that's, that's very highly respected by um, the Afghan leadership and they're just praising everything, every bit of work that this team is doing and how good the work is and how big of a difference it's made in st uh, stability and peace. Come back six months later and there's only soldiers there. And you know, you have to ask yourself, okay, what is it that, that's causing this dynamic within our bureaucracy where we can't keep those positions filled? And, and you have to say, we, we can do better than that. And I saw the governor on the second trip. Governor said things were a lot better a couple months ago. Said ever since all your experts left, things have started to deteriorate. So what did we have to do? We had to put more combat troops in the region. Ultimately, that just buys you time. Okay, um, look ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I would like to say two final things to you. Uh, I, I understand a lot of people have different political views about what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And what I, what I hope I've tried to do here is give you an idea that it, it's just not a political problem. It's a geostrategic problem, one that we as citizens have got to help our political leaders grapple with, and uh, one that I think American power is essential uh, to solve uh, ultimately for, for our good. The other point I want to make is um, the good people in the region don't want the extremists to win. And we need to keep remembering that. This is not the battle of civilizations. Not yet.
And we shouldn't let it go that way. But if we walk away from it, or we do the wrong series of events that exacerbate the problem and give heart to the extremist, we could inadvertently cause that to happen. The final of the final things I, I want to say to you is, for those of you that are in uniform, thanks for your service. I know a lot of you have served over there. For those of you who are going to go in uniform, thanks for your service. Whatever happens in the 21st century, service to the nation, whether in uniform or out of uniform, or to your community, is something all of us are going to have to do to make our country what it needs to be. And we can do that, and we should do that. And I hope you'll think about serving your country in some way. Thanks.